We return this morning to Hebrews chapter 10. We pick back up in verse 37. And we'll consider to the end of the chapter in verse 39. Hebrews 10, 37 to 39. For yet a little while, and he that shall come, will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Father, the thank you for this opportunity to return to this powerfully challenging section of the Word of God. We've worked our way through the severe warning that certainly causes our minds to think about the apostate, the individual that seems to be your child, that says they are your child, and yet walks away. And yet we have also seen in this text that the severe warning as a direct application point to the believer who experiences days of drift and wandering apart from thy loving chastisement and care. And so we pray that as we come to the end of the chapter and as we come to the development of a theme to be clearly seen in these last verses, that we would not only end well where we've been, but that we would be rightly prepared for where we're going as we start next week in Hebrews 11. Thank you for the occasion. Bless your people and study, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his blessed sake, amen. It is not what you sometimes do that makes for the earthly and eternal difference, but what you always do. If your testimony is that you prayed once about a year ago, we would be amiss to share our request with you. If you are comforted by someone praying for you, then find a person who always prays. I was just a teen when the four always statements of Paul to the local church at Philippi came on my personal radar. Paul said he always prayed. Paul said he always lived so as to magnify the Lord. Am I to understand that, that Paul never had a, an hour or a half day or a day of prayerlessness? Well, of course he did. But Paul's pattern, Paul's process and routine was to always pray and to always live so as to magnify the Lord. Paul told the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. 
Does that mean that there isn't a moment where you fail to rejoice in the Lord? Well, of course, you're going to have a moment like that. But then you catch yourself and get back to the pattern and back to the routine so that, like the Philippians of old, you should rejoice in the Lord always. And then, amazingly, Paul commended the, uh, the Philippians for always obeying the Lord in the same chapter in which he goes after two women who weren't. Does anybody obey perfectly? No. Does anybody pray all the time? No. Does anybody do right at all occasions? Absolutely not. But you do have patterns to your life. You do have routines in your life. And when it comes to the things of prayer and honoring the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord and obeying the Lord, for you and me, it ought to be associated with always. Always. The always of early Christianity is never perfect, but it is poised in grace and truth enduringly or always. And that's why in this chapter, this 10th chapter of Hebrews, that has hands down one of the most severe warnings ever to be read and studied, which we've worked through, thank the Lord we're beyond it, But nonetheless, that's why this chapter boils down to one very important phrase previously considered at verse 36. For ye have need of endurance. Ye have need of patience. The great and outstanding need of the Hebrew people, the original audience written to, was to endure or to develop this idea of always in regards to their expression of faith in the Lord. This is the clear and stated thing God's servant was after in the life of those weak and undisciplined Hebrew Christians. We live in a day of likewise multiplied weakness and lacking discipline among those that name the name of Christ. And you and I ought to pay great attention to the admonition and exhortation of this chapter that we have need of endurance, need of patience, need of staying at it under. The word in Greek is hupomeno, under, stay put. You and I are to be under, abide, or under, stay put on all occasions. I remind you structurally that three exhortations led up to the severe warning. Verse 22 of chapter 10, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Three exhortations lead up to the warning, then comes the warning, and then after the warning, two more exhortations. Verse 32, call to remembrance. Verse 35, cast not away your confidence. Those five exhortations come down then to this simple reality that every born-again follower of Christ needs endurance, needs patience in order to navigate the path of life. We pick up at verse 37 and work some more with these three last verses that set up the next three chapters 
of practical emphasis and instruction. We're seeking to show you this morning that the entire rest of the book of Hebrews develops under the topic of a living and enduring faith in Christ. Living and enduring faith in Christ is the topic introduced at Hebrews 10, 37 to 39. It is the topic of Hebrews 11. It is the topic of Hebrews 12. It is the topic of Hebrews 13. We begin this morning with the little expression of perdition as expressed in verse 39. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. The same exact word found here, translated perdition, was likewise used by the Apostle John in his gospel to tell us of Judas, the son of perdition, John 17, 12. The same exact word that is translated here, perdition, uh, uh, used of John, uh, of Judas, uh, concerning the son of perdition, is likewise used of Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 in reference to the Antichrist. So it's hard to find a word that has uh, nuances more severe than this word perdition. Uh, uh, it has clear indication and connection to Judas. It has clear and biblical connection to the aspect of Antichrist. Uh, but I want to show you that same exact word as used by uh, the Apostle Matthew. Because Matthew uses the word in a little different way and in a way that is very helpful to our understanding here in Hebrews chapter 10. So let's look at that quickly. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And I'm interested in verse 8, but I'd like to read 6 to 13. I'm interested in verse 8, but I want to read uh, 6 to 13. You're looking, of course, for the word uh, perdition, or the word that is at least translated perdition. Uh, Matthew 26, 6. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat or eating. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. Remember the difference between a good thing and a good work? For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. 
Verily, which means truly, and is our word in English, amen. Amen. I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. And today we fulfill the Lord's prophecy here in Elto by talking about the woman that, uh, you know, anointed the Lord uh, in light of his burial. And uh, why did we turn to this uh, account? Because of its tremendous uh, help to us in understanding the Hebrews 10.39 word perdition. Did you see the word perdition in the text? Me neither. So what is the exact same word? 26.8. When his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, to what purpose is this waste? Perdition. To what purpose is this perdition? To what purpose is this waste? What a waste. In that moment, the disciples thought they knew how to do ministry better than the Lord Jesus, if you can believe that. And Jesus specifically reacts to their angst and anger relative to the waste. God's servant, back in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, did not believe that the Hebrews addressed were drawing back onto waste. He did not believe that the Hebrews were drawing back onto perdition or to waste, but rather to the completion of their salvation as promised. Having been saved by faith in Christ, thereby legally, positionally correct with God, by nature of their salvation. They were then being saved or being sanctified until the day when they would be saved in the completed sense, in the end. And what the apostle says in verse 39 is that he does not believe that the Hebrew people are apostate. He does not believe that the Hebrew people are going to pull back from Christ onto a waste of their life and salvation in the Lord. The concept of waste fits the thought ending Hebrews 10 precisely. This is confirmed by the fact that the word saving is not the usual word, but rather a word that means to preserve or to possess one's property. When you're looking at the English text, you begin to guess, okay, that word in the Greek is probably this. That word in the Greek is probably this. This word in the Greek is probably that. And both when I look at the word perdition and when I look at the word saving in verse 39, I am mildly shocked because it's not the word I expect. And the first word, perdition, takes me back to the idea of waste in Matthew 26. And the second word, saving, uh, isn't that idea of soteri, or sotiros, that is usually the thought of salvation, but here is a word that uniquely has an idea of the preservation 
of one's property or one's inheritance. And it is absolutely to be understood in regards to the ultimate sense of a purchased uh, possession. We have here in this verse expression, including both you and me, that we are not of them who draw back unto waste, but of them that believe unto the purchased possession, to the end of it, to the completion of it, to the finality of it. And we would describe that as the redemption of the body. God would that we all live so as to not waste our earthly life now in light of the eternity that we will spend with the Lord then. God's salvation includes the whole of you, even including the redemption of the body. Likewise, referred to in the New Testament epistles as your purchased possession. To what degree does God save an individual? All the way to the saving of his body. Is my body saved now? Oh no, oh no, oh no. My body is not saved now. I have aches, I have pains, I have lust, I have sins. I have, I have a tremendous struggle in the context of life as it relates to my own flesh. Don't you look at me like that's strange for you. I know better of you. I know that my struggle is your struggle and your struggle is my struggle. And, uh, and the reality is we know that we are, if we know that we're saved, we know that we are not saved completely. And every day we know that somehow. But now comes the challenge, don't waste your life. Don't waste your soul in lesser pursuits, but rather act upon the heavenly trust established for you in the name of Christ. The old advertisement for the Ethnic College Fund said, A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Scripture says, A saved soul is a terrible thing to waste. And you can be a born-again believer and waste your own soul by not living for Jesus, a life that is true, by not following the Lord, day in and day out, by not making it your habit to pray, to talk to God, to hear God, to follow the Lord. You can be a waste of a Christian, a waste of an earthly soul in pragmatic terms. It's interesting because I really do believe that one of the verses of Scripture that people understand, uh, or at least they think they understand, is really not saying what they understand it to be saying at all. Uh, Jesus said, uh, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And most people think that that is saying, what does it profit a person if he becomes a, you know, Warren Buffett billionaire and yet uh, ends up dying and being forever apart from the Lord? That's very logical, but that's not the logic of the text because Jesus wasn't talking to unsaved people. He's talking to his disciples. And he's talking to disciples in the context of cross-bearing. And he told them that, that they ought to bear their own cross and follow him in bearing their own cross. And Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, what does it profit a man 
if he gained the whole world and loses his own soul. Think of the temptation of the devil. Jesus could have had the whole world of dead and sinful men over which to roll and reign, and he refused it for the sake of his own soul as God the Son, the Savior of men. And you and I are called to live as he lived. You and I are called to live the life, to have a living faith, not some decision made back when you were five years old. No, thank God for that decision of the past in your life. But you and I are to have a living, dynamic faith that endures. That's the faith that pleases God. That's why we will characterize Hebrews 11 not as some corny hall of faith heroes, but rather as examples of living and enduring faith. Your earthly soul as a believer is a terrible thing to waste. Quit wasting it. Walk with God. Respond to the Lord. Let him lead you. Don't waste your soul. All right. I'll leave it alone. Then you come to the example of the Old Testament prophet here that is cited in verse 37 and 38. 37 and 38 are a, a quote of kind. One of the things that greatly bothered me as a, as a freshman student in Bible college, first studying Greek, was the lacking specificity of the New Testament authors when quoting the Old Testament. I, I, would, have, uh, I would have been a lot, more, a lot more settled in my soul if they would have been a little more precise in the way that they quoted Scripture. Uh, they, were, uh, they were by no means loose because, after all, they were spirit-led when they quoted Scripture. But I'm telling you this, that the way the apostles of the New Testament quote Old Testament Scripture, it would never fly in Awana. You would never get your book signed. If you were a, an apostle taking on the verse, uh, uh, quoting the Old Testament in the New Testament, let me just say that. You'd never get the Timothy Award. Uh, uh, you just would not. Uh, uh, there's a, there's a, 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 a tremendous sense of, uh, of, uh, of liberty, spirit-driven liberty, in the use of the Old Testament prophecies and the Old Testament scripture line as brought to bear in the New Testament. And that'll be very, very evident right here. Believe me, it'll be very evident here. I want to uh, uh, follow the uh, prophetic example here of a life that is marked by living faith and endurance. And to do that, we have to go to the Old Testament book of, you know how I say it, Habakkuk. We got to go to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, and chapter 2. And you have in verse 3 and 4 these words. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. That vision would be the prophetic vision given to Habakkuk. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak. 
and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. But the just, the righteous, shall live by his faith. Hebrews 10, 37-38 are a clear allusion to Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4. The prophet Habakkuk was a real man of faith in God that became perplexed because of the unpunished evil all around him and the sad and sorry condition of God's people in that day. Habakkuk questioned God's plan to use the Babylonians to punish his people, Israel. In these New Testament verses, as alluded to, we have the answer of God to Habakkuk. If we understand what God said to Habakkuk, then we will better understand what is being said in relationship to Hebrews. So let's walk through it again. Verse 2 and 3. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. Run to announce it. Run to proclaim it. For the vision, the prophetic vision, is, is yet for an appointed time. It, this prophecy this vision that I'm giving to you of the nation of Israel has to be a good thing, has to do with a favor and a blessing upon the nation of Israel. Uh, that favor and that blessing upon Israel is yet for an appointed time. In the end of the appointed time, when it is appointed as a period after waiting, then that vision will come to pass, and that vision that comes to pass, uh, it will speak, middle of verse 3, it will not lie, what God says cannot fall to the ground, uh, though it tarry, though the fulfillment of the vision tarry, uh, what you need to do, Habakkuk, is wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. Like a guy in the batter's box waiting on a curve. When you get uh, in the batter's box and the guy's chucking you fastballs, you want to get on him quick. You can't afford to be delaying. You can't have any little hitch in your giddy-up you got to be ready to swing that bat. But then if he's a good pitcher, he'll, he'll throw you fire, and you get ready for him. And then he throws you the curveball, and you don't wait on it. Next thing you know, you're whacking it foul, or you whack it in the air, and they, and they catch the ball, and you're out. And so the batting coach says, when he throws the curveball, wait on it, wait on it, wait on it. And then when you wait on it, and it gets there, then smash that thing. God says to his prophet Habakkuk, here's the vision. It's not for now. You wait on it. You wait on it. You wait on it. 
You wait on it. You wait on it. Or may I say it this way? Habakkuk, you endure. You be patient. You endure. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Meaning, when the time appointed comes, it'll be exactly the way God said. Verse 4. Behold, his soul, whose soul? I would argue Nebuchadnezzar's soul. The Babylonian soul, which is lifted up, is not right is not upright in him. Habakkuk, you need to know, God knows the Babylonians deserve worse treatment than what Israel's getting. God knows that. You can be sure God will deal with that. But here's what you need to know. The just, those individuals like you, Habakkuk, that are indeed righteous by faith, shall live by that faith. That's the message of God to Habakkuk. Back to Hebrews 10. The Hebrews were sovereignly placed in a spot of waiting. Are they waiting for it? No. They're not waiting for it. They're not waiting for a prophetic vision. They're not waited, waiting for uh, a word from God to be fulfilled uh, specifically. What are they waiting for? Well, they're waiting for the Lord. And so when the apostle quotes Habakkuk at verse 37, which comes from the middle of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, I'm sorry, verse 3, he says, for yet a little while, and he, not it, he that shall come, will come, and will not tarry. So what's the truth of verse 37? That the prophetic vision that God has promised will come to pass and be fulfilled? No. The particular emphasis of the apostle in Hebrews 10 is, is that Christ, who currently is waiting to come for the appointed time of God, uh, is going to come when he comes. And so what would be the word to Christians? What would be the word to the people uh, like the Hebrews uh, that uh, are waiting for the Lord to come? Wait for him. Wait for him. Wait for him. Wait for him. Or ye have need of endurance. Wait for him. Habakkuk 2 speaks of the it guarantee. Hebrews 10 speaks of the him guarantee. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Those declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ shall live by that faith enduringly. So says verse 38. Now, the just shall live 
by faith. And while Paul uses that phraseology, and he too alludes to Habakkuk too, to build a case for faith that comes in relationship to salvation, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and then not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works which any man should boast. While faith is the issue of salvation, as we declare the gospel of Christ, faith is not just a real thing before salvation. Faith is a real thing after salvation. So if you draw it on a chalkboard, it looks like this. Faith, salvation, and faith. Faith, salvation, and faith. I had faith in the Lord Jesus, and I am saved. But I have faith in the Lord Jesus, and he's coming again. That's the only way it works. And so here, Habakkuk is brought to bear in the message to the Hebrew believers concerning a living and enduring faith. The effectiveness of this practice is indeed, verse 39, stated as not being possible to draw back unto divine displeasure. It is the life lived on earth to the pleasure of God who created it and saved it. Hebrews 11, again, not the hall of faith, but a further call to faith a living and enduring faith. I love the simplicity of Worsby. Let me read you a paragraph. This faith operates quite simply. God speaks. We hear his word. We trust his word. We act on it. No matter what the circumstances are or what the consequences may be. The circumstances may be impossible, the consequences frightening and unknown, but we obey God's word just the same and believe him to do what is right and what is best every time. It's the reason why you and I know ourselves and want to know ourselves as Bible people. This is God's word. It is what we have for the stabilization of our souls while living in a dark world. You hear the word of God. You act upon the word of God. You act upon the word of God. What do you and I usually do? Act upon our feelings. Oh, it's snowing. I think I'll stay in bed. Oh, it's such a beautiful day. I think I'll stay in bed. I don't know how it works. Uh, uh, But uh, feelings. Uh, uh, people can't control theirs, I can't control mine, and people that live by their feelings don't live very well ever. People that live by their feelings don't live very well uh, uh, ever. Uh, How should we live? We should live by the Word of God. We should live by the Word of God. We should tell our feelings that we're going to live by the Word of God. And uh, uh, we might uh, feel good, When we start out, we might feel bad when we start out. Whether we feel good or bad, we ought to live by the Word of God. You ought to act upon the Word of God you know, not your feelings. You ought to act upon the Word of God you know, not your circumstances. If the circumstances in my life ruled my life, I wouldn't be here this morning. You wouldn't be here this morning. 
We would not be engaged with open Bible and hearing from God this morning if circumstances were the dictate of our life. And I tell you, just about everybody you meet at school, almost everybody you meet at work, almost everybody you know in your own family lives by their feeling and their circumstances. And you know how to deliver them. By living by the Word of God and encouraging other people to live by the Word of God. Listen, that is living and enduring faith. That is living and enduring faith. Now, I just want to say that we sing about this all the time. And so uh, let me just show you that quick. Get your hymn book. Uh, turn to 526. We're not going to sing yet, so don't get nervous, Judy. Don't get nervous, Dawn. Just hang tight a minute. We sing about this idea of a living and enduring faith all the time. 526, you know the song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Stanza 2. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil on Christ the solid rock, I sing. We sing all the time about the unique relationship of the Lord Jesus, what he said, and how that dictates what we do in life, not our feelings, not our circumstances. Notice, please, on the top of the page, it says walking with God. On the right-hand top of the page, it says faith and hope. Or may I suggest a living and enduring faith. You and I sing about a living and enduring faith all the time. Look at 527. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me hath been made known nor why unworthy Christ in love redeem me for his own, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which, he's, which I've committed unto him against that day. Look at stanza three. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him, but I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. We sing about this all the time. A living and enduring faith. 528. I'm going to do this till the hour ends. we got like two minutes. Here we go. Uh, 528. Stanza 1. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. How do I know that? Scripture says Jesus died. Scripture says he died for me. Look at stanza three. My heart is leaning on the... My heart is leaning on the... Word! The written word of God! Salvation by my Savior's name. Salvation through his blood. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. 
and that he did. We sing about this all the time. A living and an enduring faith. A living and an enduring faith. For the sake of time, just flip to five, uh, 535. 535. This is not so familiar, but just listen to the logic here. Ask ye what great thing I know that delights and stirs me so. What the high reward I win whose name I glory in, Jesus Christ the crucified, who defeats my fiercest foes, who consoles my saddest woes, who revives my fainting heart, healing all its hidden smart, Jesus Christ the crucified, who is life in life to me, who the death of death will be, who will place me on his right with the countless hosts of light, Jesus Christ, the crucified. This is that great thing I know. This delights and stirs me so. Faith in him who died to save, him who triumphed o'er the grave, Jesus Christ, the crucified. We sing about it all the time. We need to live that way. Father, help us.